Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, your central hub for all things related to education. Join us every episode for the most up-to-date tips and strategies on how to maximize student potential. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Scalar Learning Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Huzefa. And today, I have a very, very special guest on the show. I've been having some really cool folks on lately that have their own podcasts or their own, that you know, they're really involved with math and really into communicating with students, and this is continuing that trend and tradition. So we now, today we have somebody who, according to podcastcharts.com, has the 81st ranked podcast in education in the category of K through 12. Now, if you guys are, if you guys have never tried to run a podcast or start one before, I can tell you that that, and that's on a list of, they only list the top 200 because there's thousands and thousands of podcasts. To even make the top 200 is a, it's, it's so hard. It's extremely difficult. I have a friend of mine who has a very successful podcast and he's hitting like, Three, four thousand, I think, downloads. No, no, five or six thousand now a month, which is pretty substantial. He's not even on the list. So Sam's not only the, uh, the the guest today. He's not only in that list. He's eighty-one for best podcast. It's called the Math Ed Podcast. Not only that, he is a professor at the University of Missouri and uh, University of Missouri. He, but what's even cooler? is that he's a Michigander like me, which is really cool. He did his education not only at Grand Valley State University, but also at Michigan State University, where he got his PhD in mathematics education. And the really cool thing is my dad went to Michigan State. My dad was a guest not too long ago on the show talking about mechanical engineering and mathematics. So today we are going to be talking about flipped learning. He knows all about it. If you don't know what it is, you're going to find out today. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Sam Otten to the show. Sam, how's it going? It's going very well. I'm very happy to be here, and thank you very much for that introduction. So you and you grew up in, in Michigan your entire life, right? Yeah, I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan on a farm, and my mom was an elementary school teacher. And then I went to Grand Valley State, like you mentioned, um, and that's where I did my teacher preparation. Um, and there's a little claim to fame from the people there. If uh, people have heard of Khan Academy, there was a kind of Khan Academy um, parody video that was made by Dave Coffey and John Golden, and those were my mathematics methods instructors. Um, and then I went over to Michigan State, like you mentioned. That's where I was uh, for grad school, and I really enjoyed my time there. Very cool. Did you always know that you wanted to work in math education? Um, my journey kind of began with wanting to be a teacher and then I narrowed into mathematics later. So when I went to college, I kind of just realized I was strong in mathematics and that the job market was better for mathematics. So that that's why I decided math teaching would be the best thing for me. But where I really fell in love with mathematics was actually at college at Grand Valley State. Um, I got to have some research experiences there. I got to take the proof course and then the higher level courses where math, the door kind of opens up to um, much richer thinking and reasoning. And that's what I really fell in love with. And that's still what I think about a lot because some of my research has focused on getting students involved in mathematical reasoning. 
Um, and I've looked at textbooks and the way that textbooks um, provide opportunities for reasoning. Because um, for me, that's when those doors really just opened for mathematics was to actually explore ideas, make conjectures, justify them, argue about you know what's true, what's false. Um, so that's what I think can be very rewarding in mathematics. Would you say that it's it's common or likely that even for students who aren't crazy, let's say about algebra one, pre-calculus, whatever, is it, would you say there's a high probability or possibility that they might, inst- but like the higher level, upper level courses where we're talking about proofs, theor- you know, from A to Z, stuff like that? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a kind of a changing game because a lot of the mathematics that people will have experiences with, like you said, with algebra, advanced algebra, pre-calculus, a lot of that has a very procedural feel, like there's formulas for a lot of the problems that need to be solved. Um, there's algorithms that you can execute and they give you the solution. Um, and so that's what people start to think mathematics is because that's what they have most of their experiences in. But yeah, to me, when, when proof opens up, really the bigger thing that opens up is just more a creative exploration of what's true. So can you find patterns? Can you determine that that pattern is actually valid? Can you argue with somebody else uh, in terms of arguing like, I'm going to put down a logical argument. Now, can you poke holes in my logical argument, that kind of interaction? Um, that's kind of like a whole different game, a different ball game. Like now we're, th- we're really putting ideas out there and then exploring them. And so people who are good at the first type of game of like following procedures are not necessarily the same people who might be really good at the second game. And the second game is like noticing a pattern or making a conjecture or putting together an argument. Um, Some people are good at both. And so there are people who are great at the procedural stuff, very successful. Then they go on to the, you know, more open, creative mathematics, and they still continue to do well. But that's not guaranteed. And to me, the big shame would be that there might be students who aren't very good at just following procedures and algorithms, or maybe that doesn't excite them very much because, to be honest, you know that can be kind of boring if I'm just following a procedure that a computer could do. Um, and the shame would be if some of those students think they're not mathematical or they think they're not mathematically strong to continue in mathematics, but those people might have been great at the more creative, reasoning, justifying, conjecturing type of mathematics. So for me, that drives my work because I'm just afraid that there are students who don't even continue on or never get exposed to the rich mathematics because they're already closing the door on themselves or somebody else is closing the door on them because of the procedural kind of algebra precalculus stuff. And so what you're trying to are you so you're actually trying to create ways to offer earlier exposure than otherwise having to go through calculus uh, two, three, four differential equations, a, a way to actually get a glimpse of this higher level thinking? Yeah, I mean, it definitely drives me to try to provide this, this sort of this second game that I'm talking about, like the creative, the reasoning, the arguing, to try to give those experiences to students in school, like in middle school, in high school, really all the way through. Um, there's no reason that we have to wait until they're a sophomore in college to open the door for them. And I, I'm not alone. You know, there's a lot of people in the field of math education who have this same kind of value statement where they say this rich reasoning-based, sense-making-based mathematics, that can be happening all along. We don't need to wait and hold off for it until they've passed Calc 3. That's really cool. That's very interesting. Uh, I would love to – okay, so I want to shift the conversation. Before – actually, one thing I want to mention before we shift to flipped learning uh, have you read a book by chance called a Bir- The Birth of a Theorem? 
No, I haven't read that one. Okay, it's by, I think it's Cedric Villainy is the way you pronounce his name. But he's the 2010 Fields Medal winner, in, uh, and he's a professor at the school Special Mathematique or something in, in mm-hmm. France, Paris. Anyways, it's sort of an idea, it tries to give a glimpse into what it's like to be a professional mathematician and try and solve a really hard problem. It's mm-hmm. kind of cool. I just picked it up and I'm about halfway through it. I need to, I need to finish it and then I'm going to actually do a show talking about it. But anyways, if you have any recommendations for, for cool books to give kids, uh, that's another thing I want to try and do is just give them a glimpse as, Hey, like, what is it? Cause I think it's very, we don't understand and people don't understand what goes into being a, a mathematician and solving these problems and the type of thinking you're describing. Like, if you have any books that you can recommend to give kids insight into that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, if it's high school aged kids uh, or students, there's um, letters to a young mathematician that has kind of these essays that some of them are really interesting and they try to give that insight that you're talking about. Um, also, one that I enjoyed is The Man Who Loves Only Numbers, um, which is about Erdish. Um, he's a little bit of a unique mathematician, but it still might humanize mathematics a little bit more. And then there's also one on the man who loved infinity, I believe. Those titles are similar, so I might be kind of messing them up. But it's about um, Ramanujan uh, from India. And I think they're making a movie based on the man who knew infinity. The man who knew infinity, I think is what that one's called. Um, But that's also a a really great one. Um, Just to realize that these are people and, you know, one one problem is that some people think only geniuses do mathematics. And so some of the books I just mentioned do involve people that we might call geniuses. But I think the more important thing is just to see that mathematics is a human endeavor that humans do. And they try to solve problems. They try to notice patterns. And then they try to reason through them very carefully. And that, I think, is something that everybody can get involved with. We don't need to reserve that only for the quote-unquote geniuses. And that's what I often think about math sort of has this notion of being or it's like a stereotype almost of being abstract but really and and that's why I try and devote a lot of episodes to drawing you know connecting the dots between math and the quote-unquote real world but really wouldn't Mm -hmm. you say that's they're, they're actually one and the same math is just an attempt or our attempt to understand and describe and predict the real world or maybe you even have a better uh, way of looking at math yeah I mean for me I agree the mathematics is really it grows out of the world and the universe and so you know we try to understand quantity and time and so we get number and then we get algebra and stuff but we also try to understand shape and space and so that gives us geometry and eventually when you're really trying to prove the generality of something you do need to go abstract so that what you're reasoning about applies to every single possible instance So that step of abstraction is where some people kind of lose the connection to the real world, but all of it is still based on real patterns, real phenomena in the world. And even when you get up, you know, into higher level mathematics and it seems like it's getting, you know, very esoteric and abstract, um, it's not esoteric for the people working on it. For the people working on it, the problems or the phenomenon that they're looking at they have a relationship with it. Like it has a feel, it has a style, and it has personality to it. Um, the problem that they're tackle, tackling has a personality. So it's all still very kind of rooted. Um, and the key, I think, is to get students interested in mathematics and to realize that problems can be fun to work on. And I think if students are having fun working on a problem, they don't constantly ask, how related is it to my everyday life? 
Um, you only ask that question if you kind of are bored or you're you're not really buying into what you're being asked to do. Then you start to sort of pull back and then ask yourself, am I really going to use this? But I think if you can engage them and, and show them the interesting problems where the students are actively thinking and being creative in their thinking, it never even occurs to them to ask how, quote unquote, relevant it is. Mm, that's a great point. I think that's absolutely true. Okay, now flipped learning. Can yeah. you first, and before we even jump in, what is flipped learning? Sure. Yeah. So I've been um, really thinking carefully about flipped learning for over a year now. And it's kind of something that I, I'm continuing to research. How I would define it would be um, based on a traditional mode of instruction where students come into a classroom. So this is the traditional mode. Students show up in a room. There's a teacher there. And while the teacher and the students are together in the room, there's some sort of content that is delivered. So like maybe the teacher just lectures or explains something from the front of the room, or maybe the teacher gives a handout and that handout kind of lays out, you know, the content for the day. Um, and then once that's been presented in class, the students get an individual homework assignment that they're responsible for completing. And they might start it in class, but really they're sort of responsible for doing it as homework and they need to have it done by like the next class, for example. So that's pretty common in all of school, but it's very common in mathematics. Like you come in, the teacher gives a lecture, and then the students have a homework assignment that's going to be checked in some form in the future. Flipped, the flipped instruction gets the name flipped because it reverses the contexts of where those things happen. So in a flipped lesson, the content delivery would actually happen at home. Like that's the student's homework. Their homework is to usually watch a video um, and that video contains the content information for the lesson. So it might be a video of their teacher lecturing. It might be a video of their teacher doing like a screencast or something like that. Or it might be a video from some existing source like a textbook company or YouTube or something. So the students watch that as homework. Then they come to class. And when they're in class together with their teacher, that's when they're actually working on the problems. They're maybe doing a problem set or they're maybe doing an investigation together. So the content delivery happens individually at home and then the working of problems happens together in the class. So cool. So let me tell you something. I actually, I'm, okay, I'm actually developing something right now. I'm teaching sixth grade next year for the first time. Okay. I've been primarily working as a private tutor uh, for all for all ranges, basically down from like five years old up to uh, college level, you know, just depending on whatever people need help with uh, up sure. through calculus. And I'm I'm taking on this position. I'm super excited about it. And another thing that I do is I create these online video courses. I have one for the SAT math, ACT math, IC math, whatever. Now I'm actually because I'm going to be teaching sixth grade. I'm actually in the process of putting together a course, a video course that I'm going to give to all the kids for free. That's that basically is going to mirror. It's going to go along with our sixth grade curriculum. I didn't even know this would be necessarily considered flipped learning per se, but it's along those same lines where they'll have the videos. They can watch me do like a few problems out of each chapter and then use that to learn. But anyways, yeah, so I'm really excited about it. So this is perfect because yeah, like maybe you can tell us more, you know, what have you seen in your research as far as its effectiveness or and, and maybe even talk about what are ways to make it as 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 effective as possible. Yeah, so um, I'll be speaking from the context of these teachers that we've been visiting. Um, right now, we just had a small scale study where there's about four teachers 
at different levels. So we have middle school teacher, we have a high school teacher, we have a community college teacher teaching college algebra, and we have a university teacher teaching calculus. So we wanted to see how flipped kind of happens in those different contexts. But I don't have any large scale results yet, and actually neither does the field. Like teachers are going ahead and taking off and doing a lot of flipped teaching, and the research, as is the case in academia, it's kind of slow to catch up. So I don't have any large scale definitive findings but I have been thinking about it and I have been observing classrooms and having conversations with my colleague here, Zandra De Arajo, about what we see as the effective aspects of flipped teaching. And we do see a lot of potential. So here's what I think are some of the potential of flipped instruction. Um, first of all, you can differentiate and give students individual control over their content reception, like how they're going to, um, you know, take in and digest the content presentation. So on a video, some students might watch it straight through, they've got it. Or some students might start watching it, get it really quickly, and then they can just kind of skip forward and they feel confident that they've received what was meant, you know, what was intended in the video. Other students might want to pause or they might want to replay it or they might pause it so that they can try to work through it themselves or maybe they pause it so that they can open up a new tab and like, let me look up what he means by, you know, third degree polynomial. And then once they figure out what that is, then they can go back and hit play again and continue going. Um, also, if students have um, you know special needs, like um, they need hearing supports or maybe they're an English language learning student, having the video means they might be able to actually incorporate some translation services or they might be able to pull out up you know Google Translate or something to help them with it as it's going. Um, so that's just just on its face the video allows for some use of technology in terms of supporting individual students where a teacher teaching live to a room full of students they have to just maybe kind of aim for the middle you know or something like that about how fast they're going to go or whether they re-explain something or whether they push on and skip through so that's already some advantages um the advantages are there if if the students and the teacher take advantage of the digital resources then Zandra and I think that the other big potential benefit is the way that you use the class time. So what we think would be really powerful is if the video gives students some initial ideas or it's, it questions them in terms of like raising a problem so that the students watch the video and then they, they come away from the video not with all the answers, but they come away from the video with a question. So like, oh, that video made me really wonder how to solve this kind of problem, or it made me wonder what the answer is to this situation. Um, like Dan Meyer, uh, who blogs a lot in math ed, he has some videos where he'll like shoot a basketball, but he'll pause the video before the ball goes in the hoop. So it leads to this natural question of like, is the ball going to go in or not? And can we like map a quadratic on the path of the ball to see if it's going to go in the hoop? But what that video did was it raised the question of, can we figure out if this ball is going to go in? Then what we think could be really powerful is that the students and the teacher come together to the classroom, and now they can work on that problem. They can tackle it together, and it's not like students are in isolation trying to work through it separately. Students can actually work together. They can talk to each other. They can throw an idea out there and then refine the idea together. And the teacher is actually there with them to help out. So the teacher can come and say like, oh, where are you getting stuck? Let me ask you a question that might help you get unstuck. Um, so that's where we think the benefit is, is from using the class time. Now you have more class time because you don't need to lecture for half of it. And in that class time, students could be collaborating, which we do know from research has a lot of benefits for all learners. 
And the teacher could be there while the student is working through it. Um, the teacher's not just there to present it from the front of the room. Very interesting. You know, one, of, one of the things that you mentioned uh, with respect to being able to go at your own pace, being able to stop, look things up, I wanted to ask, do you know or do you think, because I have a theory on this, but I don't know if it's true or if, it's, if it would be true if you actually looked at the numbers or whatnot, but do you think it's true that students are more nervous or anxious about asking questions in math compared to other subjects? <laughs> um, yeah, I'd have to talk to some of my colleagues in the other subjects, but I do know that mathematics has... Um, students feel like they're judged more often in mathematics. And I think it's because mathematics a lot of times is right or wrong. So if there is a right answer, then that means there's this risk of being wrong. And a lot of times students in math feel like they're expected to be right all the time. Like even when they're hearing an idea for the very first time, and it's maybe the first question that's ever been asked on this topic, like, you know, we're doing two-step linear equations. I'm now going to ask the students a question about this two-step linear equation. And students feel like they have to be correct right away, even though it's the, literally it's the first day that they've ever heard about this thing or it's the first question that they've ever been asked. In mathematics, there's just kind of this culture of judgment and we're always checking to see who's fast and who's right. And so I think that could definitely lead to math, you know, lead to people being afraid to talk up, speak up, ask questions in math because of that sense of judgment. Yeah, and I mean... To be honest, I mean, I ask that because I see it. I see it myself. Mm -hmm. and, and to be honest, I felt I always liked math a lot in high school, I mean, basically my entire life. But at the same time, I did feel an immense amount of pressure to, in, in, in that subject in particular. And, and yeah. I think that might be the reason because there is a definitive answer. I felt that pressure. Now, when and, in, oh, and yeah, speed ahead. is, I was just going to say, speed is really valued in math, which, which we're, um, the field of math ed, the scholars, are trying to push back against that idea of speed. Um, like being the fastest does not mean you're necessarily the best mathematical thinker. A good mathematical thinker also can ask interesting questions or they can notice things or they can be very careful. That's a good mathematical trait. It's not just speed. So like we're trying to broaden the idea of what it means to be good in mathematics to let more people in the door because in the past, the door to like success in mathematics is usually being right all the time and being faster than everybody else. And that's, yeah, and it's from what it sounds like to me, that doesn't necessarily translate to the practice of, if you want to call it the practice or whatever, actually being a professional mathematician. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not bad to be right and to be fast, but that's a very limited view of what goes into mathematics. And also, it kind of, it makes it where only certain students are going to be able to claim that title. Like, if you literally check for the fastest person, then that means only one person is going to be able to be the fastest. But if you if you appreciate students who ask good questions or if they notice things, even students that go off on mathematical tangents, sometimes that's what's really valued in mathematics is to go off on a tangent because it's, it leads to an interesting problem or an interesting question. So that kind of stuff allows for more students to come in the door and to, to have the title of like strong mathematical student. Very cool. You know, I'm going to probably expand now because we've been talking about some really interesting things in addition to flip learning. So I really hope parents, your kids are listening to this, hopefully to open their minds a little bit about what math is all about. And this is even illuminating for me because I'm not a I was never a, a mathematician, a professor, things like this. I loved math. 
but this is really cool. Uh, now, when, when we talk about flipped learning, for example, and I know you mentioned you're still waiting on a lot of results. What is your notion? What is your hypothesis as far as, well, maybe not necessarily. I mean, let, let, let's say you have somebody in middle school, in high school. What is your notion about the, the kids in middle school? Do you think it's still pretty effective or is that even the most effective place? Like, what's your thoughts? Yeah, so far from what we've seen, I think it can work um, at middle school, high school, college. Um, in fact, one of the teachers that we've been observing that is one of the stronger ones is a middle school teacher, um, seventh grade, and has a pretty successful flipped classroom. And she flips most of her lessons because, um, you know, that's the other thing with flipped. You don't have to flip 100 percent. You can just, you know, pick certain lessons that you want to flip by having them start at home with some kind of video or reading or something. Um, but the, the key thing to us is just, again, using the class, using the luxury of the extended class time to do something rich and worthwhile and to get students communicating about mathematics, because if they're going to be together in the same room, then it seems like you, and we would say you need to take advantage of the fact that they're together. So like if, if you have all this time with them being together in the same room and they all are just sitting quietly and solving problems individually, that seems like you're not taking full advantage of it. And that's what we're seeing too. Like we had um, one school had several teachers flipping and we talked to them and they weren't very happy with how it was going. So they were actually starting to kind of abandon the flip. But the way that they used the flip was just to assign a lecture video and then just to have students do individual exercise sets in class. And we're kind of like, yeah, well, of course it didn't work out very well because you're not really doing anything innovative with the flip. You're sort of just doing exactly what you did before. Um, but instead of sitting at home individually doing homework, the kid is sitting at their desk individually doing homework. And um, so for us, it's like if you really want to see the learning gains and to see students more excited about mathematics, that would come from using the flipped instruction to allow students to collaborate more and to allow the teacher to lead rich problem solving and discussions of mathematics because they would be working on it together in the same room. Very cool. I'm going to keep all of this in mind for next year. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, this is so great for me. One other thing, when we're talking about the environment at home, do you have tips for parents as far as fostering a nurturing environment? I mean, do you recommend having a parent sit with them as they watch a video? What do you suggest? Oh, yeah. So a couple of suggestions. I, I meant to say this before, too. Um, in terms of like middle school students, uh, keeping them activated and stuff, I would definitely recommend the shorter the video, the better. Um, not, not to do like a vine or something where it's just like a few seconds, but it definitely seems more effective to hit like the five to 10 minute range. That seems much better than getting to like 15, 18, 20 minute videos. So even though a teacher might have lectured for 20 minutes, um, and we might advise not to really lecture for 20 minutes, like you kind of want to keep your lessons into sort of like 15 minute chunks or less. But, um, video length does matter because first of all, if you've got a 15 minute video, you're probably actually hitting multiple ideas. And for the student to take away all of those multiple ideas is is harder. If you have multiple ideas that you want to get out there, I would say just do three five minute videos. Um, the other thing is just a straight up practical matter of how long is that student going to attend to the video without opening up another tab or going to do something else, you know, on the internet while they're at the computer. Um, so that's one recommendation, five to 10 minutes. And you mentioned parents, which is very insightful because one of the pushbacks that's happened with Common Core is that parents 
feel less able to help their students with the homework because the homework might be open to multiple approaches and we maybe not are not doing things the exact same way that we did them in the 70s or 80s. Um, but this flipped homework is more accessible because a parent can watch the video if they want and the student can watch the video and they could actually talk about that video that they both watched. Whereas, you know, with traditional instruction, the parent never gets the in-class lecture or the in-class presentation of the material. So when the parent sees the homework, they're at a disadvantage because they don't know how it was presented and what the teacher was kind of going for with the homework assignment. But with flipped homework, the parent can sit and watch that video just as well as the student can. And the student might be able to make some more connections to like the past lessons and stuff, but it's very approachable that anybody can start playing that video and they can try to pick up the ideas from the video. Great. That's a great point. That's so that's so cool. I'm really excited. And I'm probably, hopefully, if that's cool with you, I would love to reach out to you as I'm starting to put everything together and put my videos together uh, for this next year. So this has been such a pleasure for me. Um, I want to end with something fun that I read on your, on your profile. And that mm-hmm. is that you have memorized every single I feel this is just fitting since we're in election season, uh, yeah. a pretty crazy one. So you have memorized. So you've memorized every single presidential uh, nominee. Not not you've memorized every single president as well as their challenger for how many for the all of for, them? No, for the last like 130 years, I've, I haven't quite bit the bullet to go and learn like the late 1700s and early 1800s. But from um, like the 1880s to now, yeah, I've memorized the winner and the loser. Okay, so let's give it a shot here. Let's do a couple for fun. And you at home, you can you can verify and listen. So let's start with, I'm trying to, I got to make sure to re- hit the election years. I think I can do that though. Okay, 1900. Um, so that was McKinley defeating, uh, see, McKinley defeated, oh, sorry. This is a different format than I usually do it. So How do you normally do it? Let's do it that so, way. I usually actually just go ahead and start writing them all down. And then so sometimes I can play off of like the previous one to figure out. Got it. But, let's, do, let's do that. Start at the beginning and take us through. We won't go all the way, but we'll go a reasonable amount just for fun. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's easy for the last few years because Obama defeated Romney. Obama defeated uh, McCain. And then we had the Bush years, Bush defeating Kerry, Bush defeating Gore. But then we had Clinton who defeated Dole. Clinton defeated the first Bush, Bush defeated uh, Dukakis, and then the Reagan years was Reagan over Mondale and Reagan over Carter. Carter defeated, uh, he defeated Ford. So Ford, uh, fun fact, also Michigan connection. So Gerald Ford is from Michigan, and he actually, I think, is the only president that became president without ever getting elected to national office. Because he was not elected VP, he was like a replacement VP, and then he was never elected president. He was defeated by Carter. He only became president after Nixon resigned. Um, so that's kind of a Michigan fun fact. But Nixon defeated uh, McGovern, and Nixon defeated uh, Humphrey, and then uh, Johnson, he defeated uh, Goldwater. And then the Kennedy years, Kennedy defeated Nixon. So Nixon also has a fun fact of losing to Kennedy, but then later winning. And back in the past, there were a lot more people who would run for president and lose, but then run again. That happened all the time in like the first half of the 1900s and even the 1800s and stuff, which nowadays seems like it could never happen. It seems like now you get one shot and that's it. That was awesome. All right. I'll I'll take that. That'll (laughs) stop there. That's so cool. I I think the real, I mean, 
I feel like the harder part of that is actually knowing all the losers. So that's that's crazy to me, and that's fun. And it, obviously, you like good mental workouts. That's a great one. So there you guys have it all the way down to the 60s, I believe you went. Or did you go to the 50s? I think it was just the 60s. 50s is Eisenhower Stevenson, Eisenhower Stevenson. So that's an easy one because it was actually the same showdown both times. And I think McKinley in 1900 must have been Brian, um, that Williams Jennings Brian, because he lost three times. Um, and so I think that's who McKinley beat in 1900. Okay. Very cool. Big thank you to our guest, Sam Otten. Sam, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Um, they can find me on Twitter at OttenSam. Um, and definitely check out the Math Ed podcast if you're interested in math. Uh, we talk about you know researchers and their current studies in math education, and that's mathedpodcast.com. Very cool. And I will also be posting links to all Sam's information, contact, uh, his podcast, etc. You can check out the show notes at www.scalarlearning.com. Also, if you have any questions or comments from me, please email me at huzefa at scalarlearning.com. As always, would love to hear from you. We are now at August. So guess what? We still got episodes coming out every day for the remainder of the summer. Then I'll probably have to reel it in a bit. But a lot of great stuff, a lot of cool guests coming up. Again, we're going to be interviewing somebody from Alex, the company that makes all this amazing math software. So that's going to be cool. And if you have questions that you want me to ask the Alex people, like, why does it keep crashing at this point? Whatever it is, send it to me. And I'll, I'll be sure to ask them that forward on your question. Thank you guys so much for joining. I'll see you guys next time. Take it easy. Yeah.